Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Habakkuk. When I was preparing this week's sermon, I, I had a laugh with Drew because I was going over the manuscript with him and I had put open your Bible to the book of Romans in my manuscript just uh, because that's what I was used to doing. So we are in the book of Habakkuk this uh, morning, and we will be for the next four weeks. And um, I do not blame you if you need to look in the table of contents to find the book of Habakkuk. Uh, so please feel free to do that as you're looking for it. Go to the table of contents and find it. It is a short book, only a, a two and a half pages in my Bible, and three chapters long. And we will be here, um, <clears throat> Lord willing, uh, for four weeks as uh, we uh, prepare for another long series that we will begin uh, on Easter, going through the Gospel of Mark. And so the Gospel of Mark will take us a little over about 70 sermons uh, or so, uh, again, Lord willing, as I've got it outlined out, uh, but Habakkuk should only take us four. And we pause here in Habakkuk, because I believe that this minor prophet, whom we know very little about, <clears throat> is asking questions that all of us have either, either have asked in our lives, or are asking in this present moment. Questions that the whole world has been asking, especially in light of the year 2020, and in light of how this year has begun. Habakkuk questions God's rulership over the world as it stands. He questions what God is doing and what God is not doing, but unlike many other conversations that we have with God, this time God responds to Habakkuk in an audible, discernible way. So there is a dialogue that we get to see between one of God's prophets and God himself. Habakkuk asks a question or raises a concern. God then responds. Habakkuk writes it down. So our hope is, our aim is, that we learn what Habakkuk learned from this conversation with God. So turn your attention with me to Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way down to verse 11. And then we're going to pause and, and ask that God would help us to understand <clears throat> the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so patient with us. We are so limited in our understanding of what you're doing in the world. Yet you're a God who fields our complaints and hears our prayers. That you would take the time to to answer one man otherwise unknown to world history. That you would speak with him. And you would reveal to him what you're doing in the world. Thank you for being the kind of God who was patient with Israel and who's patient with me, who was patient with Habakkuk, who extends grace and mercy and compassion, yet is sovereign and holy and just. We pray, God, that through this series in your word that we would catch a glimpse of you and that you would cause us to behold you in ways more profound than when we came in to this place, Father. I pray in this moment of preaching that you would take me over and that you would take away the distractions and that you would speak true things and that we would have ears to hear and to believe the things that you have revealed, God. So we we pray, may this moment be a moment of joyful worship as our understanding of you uh, grows. So Father, we love you and we, we pray that you would speak now by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Habakkuk is a book about perspective. One of the difficult things about preaching the book of Habakkuk is that there's really one point. There's really like one big idea that the whole book is working toward. And you're, you're, you're on the journey with Habakkuk, who is raising complaints against the Lord. And God is adjusting Habakkuk's perspective until he comes to sort of this aha moment at the end of chapter 3. So the challenge is to, to preach the whole book, knowing that the big point is, is coming later, and, and leaving you with some questions unanswered yet. So we're going to try to work through this book by, by giving you glimpses of what's coming, but staying grounded in the particular passage that we are in. But the whole book is a matter of perspective. Habakkuk calls out to God, whom he thinks or feels as if God is, is not ruling the world how he would rule the world. 
And we, we understand this. Many of us have come to points in our lives where we feel as if God is not acting the way we think he should act in a situation. And we have questions. In Habakkuk, God fields the questions and provides some answers. But the answers are designed to put the world and God in perspective for Habakkuk. They are not necessarily the answers that Habakkuk wants. They are the answers that Habakkuk needs in the end. The book begins with these words. Look at verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This word, oracle, means burden. Can be translated as burden in several other places in the Old Testament. You see it show up in uh, the book of Numbers, uh, in Numbers 11, uh, verse 11, when Moses is talking about the burden of leading God's people. It is weighty for him. For, for Habakkuk, he is, um, you know what? I was wondering what was happening here. I am preaching from an old manuscript that uh, from like Wednesday, I'm like, this is not where this is supposed to go (laughs) in my sermon. So this has never happened before, so give me two seconds, and I'm going to find where this is supposed to be. What in the world? This has been one of those days this morning. What in the world? You have got to be kidding me. I'm about to have to preach this just from the text without even having having notes. Come on now, don't do this to me. Okay, we back on, on path now. Okay, let's, let's try this again. Where are we at? Where are we at? This feels better. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, this is scattered everywhere. This is not my train of thought. That's because this was Wednesday's train of thought, uh, not Sunday morning's train of thought. Habakkuk 1-1. Now, you read, everybody ready now? <laughs> Habakkuk 1-1. Let me read that again. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now before I talk about the oracle, let's talk about the prophet. First thing that we need to know is that we know very little about the prophet Habakkuk. This is the only time he shows up in the biblical story. And all we get is Habakkuk's message. We do not get Habakkuk's story. This guy goes down in history only as a guy who prayed and spoke to God and spoke on God's behalf. He had a word to speak, and according to verse 1, it was an oracle, which, as I said just a second ago, was a burden, a word that shows up in Numbers 11.11, which is now in my manuscript, which is thankful, so I can actually read it. Numbers 11.11 says this, Moses says this, Why have you dealt with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on Me, like Moses, Habakkuk had a burdensome ministry. He had a message that was weighty, heavy, and concerning. And so the message begins already with the aura of weightiness, of 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 like something pressing down upon Habakkuk that he must speak to people whom he loves, to a nation that he is a part of, the nation of Israel. And in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, it begins in this way, O Lord, how long 
shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? So we're going to look at three areas where Habakkuk's perspective uh, is coming to play, and then we're going to look specifically at God's. Truth number one, from, from Habakkuk's perspective, God is not listening. From Habakkuk's perspective, God is not listening. How long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Apparently Habakkuk's been praying for something for some time now. And he's not just praying. He's been crying out for God to do something. For God to help with something. He's been crying out for God to save. And apparently thus far in all of his days, if not years, of crying out, he's got nothing. He's heard nothing from the Lord. It feels like God's not listening or he's busy with something else. So in frustration and helplessness, Habakkuk cries out, how long? In other words, are these prayers even working? Are you listening or am I wasting my time with this whole praying thing? Habakkuk writes from the perspective of needing God to act. But God not acting in the way Habakkuk thinks God should act. Or at least not acting in what Habakkuk considers to be a timely manner. Truth number two, from Habakkuk's perspective, God is not timely. Habakkuk's praying for a very good thing. He's praying for salvation of the righteous, judgment for the wicked. The Israelites have been doing violence to one another. And Habakkuk wants God to put a stop to it. And we will see that more in the next verse. But for now, I just want you to feel the weight of Habakkuk's assumption. God, you should have done something by now. You should have disciplined the wrong, vindicated the righteous. And thus the cry, how long is this going to go on? Verse 3, he piles up another question. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So this is the situation in Israel. Iniquity, destruction, violence, strife, and contention are the overwhelming experience, not from foreigners outside of themselves, but within the nation of Israel. He says that the law is paralyzed, or you could translate it, the law is numbed. In other words, It's not doing anything in the land. One of God's greatest gifts to Israel, the law of Moses, is given to them for their good so that they would have a thriving society in relationship to each other, in relationship to God. Yet the law seems to be useless. It's serving no purpose because everyone disregards it. And because it is disregarded, justice never goes forth. And this means... If there's no law in the land, what results is not righteousness. We learn something about the sinfulness of humanity here. That that if a, a group of people, a nation of people, left to themselves, left to do what they want to do, the result will be them harming one another. 
anarchy doesn't work. Because the sinfulness of man's heart, by his very nature, will hurt his fellow man for his own perceived benefit. This means that the poor are oppressed, the weak are taken advantage of, the strong go on acting wickedly and never suffering the consequences. In fact, it is more prosperous in Israel, from Habakkuk's perspective, to be among the wicked than to be among the righteous. He writes, the wicked surround the righteous. So there are more evildoers in the land than righteous doers. And because of all this, justice goes forth perverted. See, the Israelite nation was supposed to be a light in a dark world. God gave them a law that would set them apart to be a different people in the world. The justice, compassion, love, care for one another in Israel was supposed to go forth like a shining representation of what their God is like. They were supposed to show the compassion of their God by how they showed compassion upon one another. And the pagan nations were supposed to gaze upon Israel, how they treated one another, how they treated uh, the least of these among them. And the unbelievers were supposed to marvel at the justice of the one true God. And if they refused, God had said very clearly... More than it would not go well with them, but that curses would fall upon them. And that's exactly what's happening in Habakkuk's day. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 27, I think this will help us because Habakkuk would have had these words on his mind as he's gazing out upon the nation that was supposed to be God's people. He would have been reminding the stipulations of the covenant. This is what you're supposed to look like and this is what's going to happen if you don't look like this. So Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 14 says this, the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. If you jump down to Deuteronomy 28 verse 1, it says, God says to the people, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. So this is the background that Habakkuk's operating off of. We're supposed to be the people set up high for all the nations of the earth to look upon. And if we don't look like this, curses will fall on us. And we have to remember that as we read the book of Habakkuk, we're reading the words of a real man living in a real place. We're reading the words of a man who walks down the street and sees the starving orphan. He sees the starving widows of the land. He's hearing the stories of murders going unpunished. He's walking amidst the idols to the false gods being worshipped in horrible ways. His people, his nation, his home spiraling into deeper sin and sin. Real suffering, real injustice, real idolatry is happening. And from Habakkuk's perspective... God had said 
that curses would come and judgment would come to turn this thing around, and he's doing nothing. God is not hearing my prayer. God is not acting in a timely manner. This goes on. So, truth number three. From Habakkuk's perspective, God's decisions don't make sense. Twice in the passage, he writes, why? Why? Why is God idly standing by while wicked people seem to be prospering in his nation? Habakkuk doesn't understand God's reason for delay, why God allows what he allows, why God doesn't bring any change. And thus far, in Habakkuk verses 1 through 4, the only voice that we hear is Habakkuk's. But in verse 5, that changes. In verse 5, someone else begins to speak, and that someone else is God. Verse 5 God says this, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So the verbs in verse 5, they are... These verbs are not in the second person singular. They're in the second person plural. So God's answer is not just for Habakkuk here. He begins to speak to a plurality of people. He intends for this message to be broadcasted to the nation of Israel. So this is for Habakkuk, but this is also for Habakkuk to preach to everyone. He commands the whole nation here, look See, wonder, be astounded. I'm doing a work that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. In other words, I'm working. You can't see it or understand it from your perspective. In fact, you will refuse to believe it when Habakkuk preaches it. Truth number four, and our longest truth that we will look upon, God is working in ways Beyond Habakkuk's understanding. In all of Habakkuk's groaning and crying out to God. In all of Habakkuk's accusing of God that he was idly looking on the wickedness of Israel. God says, I'm already doing something. I'm not passive, I am active. I am bringing things into being. God was working out details for a plan that far surpassed Habakkuk's ability to comprehend. So while Habakkuk was groaning that there was no justice in the land, God was already doing something. And the something that God was doing was the assembling of the most powerful military force in the world at the time. To come and bring justice upon his wicked people. The rest of the passage this morning describes what God was working. And you just got to think that if you're in Habakkuk's shoes, he's asking for justice to be served. And it's one of those moments where it's like, I need to be careful what I ask for. Because what God is planning is beyond what Habakkuk ever anticipated in both intensity and extremity. God was going to judge the wicked among them. Listen to how it's described. We're going to read verses 5 through 11 again. 
This is the description of the Babylonians whom God had been prophesying would come and wipe out the wicked nation of Israel for forsaking him. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth for themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen coming from afar, they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. The Babylonians were a vicious group of people that were all Already on the move while Habakkuk stands and complains that God was not bringing any punishment to these wicked people. They are described as bitter and hasty. They move quickly to inflict harm on others to take land that is not their own. God describes them as dreaded and fearsome. Their dignity and justice go forth from themselves. In other words, they march by their own rules. They do not submit to the rules of war. They do not submit to anybody else's rules of morality. They certainly do not submit themselves to the one true God. They are only concerned with exercising power to devastate and exploit their enemy. And at the time of of this writing they had already been successfully conquering kings and nations and it's as if they are laughing at them as kings and nations bring their best to fight them off a wicked people a guilty people an idolatrous people a people who had no interest in doing the bidding of some israelite god yahweh yet verse six says god says i am raising up the Chaldeans. God is claiming here sovereignty, control over the most powerful nation in the world at the time, and he describes them as if they're just like a pawn in his hand to do as he pleases. An irreverent, wicked nation, not trying to fulfill God's plan, are unknowingly fulfilling God's plan to bring judgment on Israel. Habakkuk's complaint, there's, there's no punishment overtaking Israel. And God's answer is, it's already on its way. And it's by means that you would never have expected. Now, this picture of God sovereignly using things that you would never anticipate him to use is 100% consistent with the picture of God that we see throughout the entire Bible. God has a plan. And he's not just sitting by idly uh, hoping that it happens. He's, he's moving history in a direction toward a particular end. He has both the authority and the power to do as he pleases even through wicked people being put to work to accomplish his own purposes. This is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. As we've said before, and as we've looked at in Equip, going through the Old Testament, Genesis ends with a doctrinal statement by Joseph 
that really just encapsulates the whole of what, Gen- what was happening in Genesis and really the whole of what's happening in the world. Joseph was treated very wickedly by his brothers. Remember, he was sold into slavery. He suffers on his way to Egypt. He's thrown into a dungeon at one point. He's brought back out, and through a series of crazy events, he finds himself second in command in Egypt, put into a position of power where he's actually able to save the brothers who betrayed him and his whole family from a famine that came into the land. And at the end of the whole book of Genesis, Joseph is recognizing this reality that even when he was hungry at the bottom of a pit, even when he was being drugged as a slave betrayed by his own family, God was not surprised by any of it. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks back at his brothers And he describes one of the craziest things in the whole Bible. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So that even in, in men's most wicked actions, thinking that they are opposing the will of God, they are unknowingly fulfilling the plan that God had for them to fulfill. The God of the Bible is not overthrown, slown down, or challenged by anyone or anything. He has all authority and all power to bring his plans to being. In fact, you might say the whole biblical story is about a creator God who is proving himself sovereign over his creatures despite their rebellion. The whole message of the Bible is that there is one king, one God, one ruler, and there is no other. Your Christian life is a progressive learning of this reality. Your Christian sanctification is a progressive learning that God is God and you are not. And the circumstances of your life teach you that. And reteach you that, and reteach you that, that God is God and you are not. God is creator and you are creature. Just sit here for a second and think about all the things in your life that you feel are out of control. And listen to the testimony of scriptures this morning Psalm 115, 1 through 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the stake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Hear what Job learned at the end of his life of, of such suffering in Job 42, too. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Isaiah 14, 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Isaiah 46, 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my words be that go out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is working beyond our understanding, and he does so unfailingly. There is no moment in history where God says, whoops, or where God says, oh no. Or where God says, I sure hope that they. There is no moment in history that is outside the control of God. The, the clearest moment in history where God works through the wickedness of the world even. In a mind-boggling way is the moment of the cross itself. Right? I mean, we've talked about this before as a church. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's preaching about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And he says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Lawless men sought to destroy God's plan by killing God's son, and in the process, fulfilled God's plan that God's son would die. <laughs> Did sinful man nail Jesus to the cross? Yes. Was it God's the Father's plan for Jesus to be nailed to the cross? Yes. Even in man's most intense attempts to overthrow God's plan, they unintentionally fulfill it. And God is sovereignly working to bring about his purposes even in the darkest of hours in ways we could never imagine. From our perspective, he's not listening, he's not timely, and we don't understand. But the guarantee of the Bible is that God is in fact working and there is no situation that he does not use to accomplish the purposes he planned to accomplish. God is working and according to God, you would not believe it even if he told you. <laughs> God is, can you see how timely this is for us this moment? God is working through a global pandemic. God is working through the loss of your job. God is working through the death of your loved one. God is working through the sickness that won't go away, through the sin that you're fighting, through the loneliness that you're feeling, to the results of an election. Now, I'm not saying that, that you have to like the way in which God is doing it. Well, we see that Habakkuk is not fond of the way that this plan is unfolding in the immediate. But he hopes in the God who has the eternal in his hand. Habakkuk cries out, how long, O Lord, and why? And the answer God's give is simply, I'm working, you don't understand. <laughs> now, for some, this is a, a comforting reality, but for some, uh, this is also a frightening reality because because for God he is working salvation for those who are righteous and wicked uh, uh, judgment for those who are wicked God's working in this scenario to bring about upon Israel a massive day of reckoning for those who reject him power authority sovereignty is only good news if God is working for you and not against you if he is working against you, that means no sin you have ever committed will be hidden from his sight. 
and no sin you will ever have ever committed will go unpunished in the end. So as we look at Habakkuk, we ask the question, okay, well, how do we know that we're on the right side of sovereignty here? Now again, it's tempting to go and preach the rest of the book, but, but I want you to consider the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 when he saw a parallel in the book of Habakkuk for those who reject or accept Jesus. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Um, Paul is speaking again to an Israelite nation who are slow to believe. To a nation that deserves judgment. And this is, this is what he says in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the love of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Jump down to verse 46. After many Jews did not believe the word that was being told to them. And Paul says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. The Israelites in Habakkuk's day heard about a sovereign God who was working out a plan. And, and the prophecy was, was designed to bring them to repentance, to turn, to turn to the one true God rather than this judgment come. And they heard this from the prophet Isaiah, from the prophet Habakkuk, from Jeremiah. They, they heard this, that judgment was coming through Babylonians and they thrust aside the word, unwilling to believe. And the Chaldeans or the Babylonians swept the land and devastated them and Paul sees a parallel to the Jews in his day who are hearing the word that through Jesus alone you find salvation eternal life and forgiveness and Paul was watching people thrust us aside and as, as Paul's reading Habakkuk and the devastation that would follow, he recognizes that, man, the devastation coming in Habakkuk was only a shadow of the devastation to come on those who reject the Son of God. And he's pleading with the people, don't thrust aside the Word of God. Believe and find forgiveness in the Son of God. Trust Him. Four truths that we have looked at as we've just sort of introduced the story of Habakkuk. From Habakkuk's perspective, God's not listening. From Habakkuk's perspective, God's not timely. From Habakkuk's perspective, God's decisions don't make sense. But truth number four, God is working in ways beyond Habakkuk's understanding. Standing. And while our context is not exactly the same as Habakkuk's, the truths reign true today as well. I want to leave you with, with three uh, takeaways this morning. Three, three responses uh, just to this sort of perspective check that begins to happen in the book of Habakkuk. Number one, 
consider the limitations of your perspective. This is the big thing I want you to walk away with this morning. Consider the limitations of your perspective. Be reminded this morning of how little you really know and understand about what's going on in the world. You are geographically limited, meaning you cannot be all places at all times. You are grounded where you are. You are intellectually limited, meaning you do not and cannot know all things. You are spiritually limited, meaning your motives are not and cannot always be right. In fact, they are often, if not usually, wrong. (laughs) You are morally limited, meaning you don't even know what's right and wrong in many situations. You may think that there's something right, and it is actually wrong, and you may think that something is wrong, and it is actually right. You are chronologically limited, meaning you do not and cannot know the future, nor can you remember fully or accurately the past. This happens to me all the time. I have a conversation, and then three months later, they're like, well, you said, and I'm like, I have no idea that I said that. I don't know the past or the future. I am, I am physically limited, meaning I am not all-powerful. My body reminds me every day it has limitations, and more so as the days continue. When you lay your head on the pillow at night and you need sleep, it is a reminder that you need things that God doesn't need. That there is a limit to your ability to even stay awake. You must slip into a state of unconsciousness every single day. Or it will affect even how you think or behave. You are limited. And now consider the limitations of your perspective, but then consider, number two, the limitlessness of God's perspective. He is all places at all times. He does know all things. He is the source and standard of all morality and spiritual goodness. He is the beginning and the end, knowing the future, the past, perfectly, bringing them to completion according to his own desires. He is unlimited in power to do what he pleases. He is all-powerful. He does not need sleep. He does not need food. He does not need water. He does not need oxygen. He does not need your counsel or advice. When we shake our fist at God and say, how could you? How long? Why? We must remember that we are created beings speaking from a limited perspective, demanding answers from an unlimited God. Creator God. Consider the limitations of your perspective. Consider the limitlessness of God's perspective. Takeaway number three, and this is just going to be takeaway for the whole book. Trust him. What other option do you have but to trust the God who made you and sustains your breath even now? This will be the message of Habakkuk, that God is working in ways that maybe Habakkuk doesn't like, maybe Habakkuk doesn't understand, but the whole message of the book will echo over and over and over. Your responsibility, Habakkuk, is to trust God. This is what God graciously and compassionately is leading us as a church to do in a season of life where so much feels out of our control. We must trust him with our salvation, obviously. We do not save ourselves. We trust him with our country. We trust him with our family. We trust him with our life. We trust him with the wickedness of the world that seems to go unchecked. We trust him with the injustice of the world. We trust him. And we hear God's words this morning 
Look among the nations, see, wonder, be astounded. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So, so the goal this morning in our time of response is, is to be humbled before God. And not necessarily to look all, at all the things that are going on in our lives. I mean, all of us have things going on in our lives that are just like wild, right? I mean, they're just, just like, I, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know how this is going to go well. The goal of, of this morning is not, not necessarily to look at all those things. But I just want to take a few moments and for us just to look at God. Just behold Him and consider how limitless He really is. And how the cross of Jesus Christ proves that through faith in Jesus, we're on the right side of his sovereignty. Because according to Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for the good of those who know him, love him, trust him. That God is for us, not against us. And so, so for us, we may not understand why it's all happening, but when it's all happening, we don't look at the situation, we look at the God who proclaimed to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is for us and that our role in the situation is to trust him. So let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for this word. Thank you for... Um, leading us to this book and such a day as this, Father. Um, we are limited, and you are limitless. I feel my own limitation even this morning, God. But I trust you, and we look to you. Help us now to look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and... and uh